Hello, and welcome to the Friday Reporter. I'm Lisa Camuso Miller, your host, and proud to be partnering with PR Daily. Because PR Daily is a tremendous resource for communicators, not only for tactics and tools that make us smarter at what we do, but also for conferences and events that can help us connect with others who are doing what we uh, do every day. And that's why I'm really looking forward to November 17th. They're hosting a conference called The Future of Communications, partnering with Ragon Communications. You can find out more about it on prdaily.com. In fact, you can also get $100 off your registration if you use the code FRIDAYREPORTER. Today's episode was recorded from Capitol Hill with Jonathan Martin, who you know as the national political correspondent for the New York Times. We were lucky enough to get Jonathan for just a quick conversation in between the debate in the House about uh, passing the infrastructure bill, uh, while we also were watching the uh, the timeline tick away for the funding of the federal government and a variety of other key issues happening right here in Washington. Uh, so this conversation is a quick and a fun one with Jonathan. As you can tell, he is moving in and out of the Capitol and having a lot of interactions on the way. We're lucky enough to have caught him uh, at a time when he is not only reporting about Capitol Hill political campaigns, but also writing a tremendous book about the intersection between history and what's happening today in the 2020-2021 uh, national political environment. Let's listen into this conversation now. Well, thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter podcast. This week, I am lucky enough to catch Jonathan Martin in between meetings. He is the national political correspondent for New York Times, and he is, uh, well, he does a whole lot of other things too. But Jonathan, thanks so much for joining me. It's such a busy day. Thanks for having me, Lisa. So tell me a little, Jonathan, about, uh, we're going to get into a little bit about what's going on up there and how it's how it's yeah. unfolding, but tell me a little bit about, you have such a great background, started at the hotline, yeah. have worked for so many years doing some tremendous things. Tell me about how you got into journalism. So I, after college, I actually worked in politics initially and loved politics. I realized that I wanted to cover it, write about it, and think about it, and talk about it more than I actually wanted to do it. And... Um, I got a great opportunity to work for a fellow named Chuck Todd mm-hmm. at the hotline, uh, who was then the editor. And um, uh, it's a great political and journalistic education because you're exposed to uh, so many different races and sort of how the races are covered. And you know, for your listeners who are a little bit younger, essential read um, in the days before you could sort of read papers uh, from any city online. It was a compendium of political news which at the time was you know, really significant because you, know, you couldn't go online and read the Kansas City Star, for example. Um, so it, it was a huge deal. And uh, I learned a lot about journalism and, and, and politics uh, very quickly working for, for Chuck and just a, a great team over there. Well, I mean, and I've, I've been lucky enough to visit with Amy Walter and with Reed Wilson and a handful of others that are just oh, yeah, superstars. Yeah. John Mercurio. Yeah, it was a really fun group. I mean, you just had a tremendous, tremendous opportunity. And from there, you parachute into uh, Politico at the very, very beginning and, and really sort of <laughs> yeah, were there. Yeah, I was president of the creation for Politico. I was there um, uh, on the ground floor uh, at the end of 06, start of 07. And we really lucked out because, you know, it was effectively the start of the 2008 election cycle. Mm-hmm. So 
we began at the outset of what became this historic presidential race. You had the Republican side, you know, John McCain's incredible comeback, and that he owns the Sarah Palin, mm-hmm. uh, two storylines which themselves were remarkable. And then, of course, you had the most epic Democratic primary in recent history of the states Hillary and Obama. So Politico was um, both good and lucky. And, in, you know, obviously in journalism as in life, mm-hmm. it's good to be lucky and good. So. <laughs> No doubt about it. No doubt. And then so I also was really lucky to catch Carl Hulse a couple weeks back, um, I guess over the summer and had a chance to talk to him a little bit about what it is he covers uh, for the Times. But your perspective is actually quite different as much as you're covering the same um, body of, you know, life as yeah. it is the Congress and the, and what's going on up there. Tell me a little bit about how your, um, what's your vantage point and what is it sure. that you cover specifically? Sure. What kinds so of things? I'm on the politics and cover campaigns and elections. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, you know, obviously during you know, election cycles, whether it's the midterm or the that's my primary role covering campaigns and elections. A little different in the audience, um, because they're obviously not uh, kind of elections, they're approximate, uh, so it's a little bit different of a beat. It's a mm-hmm. sort of more creative um, beat. Uh, also, plug here, I am working on a book with my colleague Alex Burns uh, about uh, American politics in 2020 and 2021. Wow. Um, so I'm spending a lot of time um, uh, getting that done uh, and trying to um, uh, sort of capture uh, this moment in American history. And that's been really fun, trying to sort of put this period of context to capture the larger meaning of, you know, really this, this kind of stress test for American democracy mm-hmm. the last couple of years. And um, that book's going to be out uh, next year uh, from Simon & Schuster, still untitled, but uh, okay. hope your listeners will all pre-order their copy when the time comes. Well, we, we do that for, for lots of your colleagues, but this is not your first book, even, even Jonathan. You just wrote not long ago, it was about Obama and Romney. Is that right? Oh, right. The the ebook at the end of 2012. Yeah. Yes, with Glenn Brush. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is a little different. Uh, mm-hmm. It's sort of the first real um, comprehensive sort of uh, book book uh, uh, that I've done. And um, it's neat. You know, it starts stretching different muscles. Um, it's uh, going deeper, uh, more comprehensive about sort of both parties, which I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can sort of um, take a sort of broader view. I mean, the hope is that uh, this really captures um, this kind of tumultuous moment. Yeah. Um, like the last year and a half what we've gone through in this country, I think don't fully appreciate uh, what happened and part of it we're living it. But I think uh, 10, 20 years down the road, people will look back at this moment and really think, wow, what happened? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, Jonathan, a little bit about how it is your day-to-day reporting informs the, oh, okay. the book itself. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I was on book leave for most of the summer. I'm now back mm-hmm. and uh, doing double duty. Um, you know, I think, it's important for sources to separate uh, uh, the book and the paper, and we sure. do that uh, very explicitly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but clearly, uh, the, the relationships and the kind of, um, uh, you know, directional um, sort of 
threads and storylines that you pick up doing the book help your your day-to-day reporting because you sort of know angles to pursue mm-hmm. a lot better so it's a really sort of fun experience doing both it's obviously a little, a little busy yeah. um but you, you know you can sort of pick up uh the forest for the trees mm-hmm. uh day-to-day given that you, you know you're doing this book and the book itself so you took the summer off which was great because because lots of folks um some folks get book leave, others do not, and have to yeah, report no, side by side. Yeah. Um, how far along? You're, you said you're working together with Alex Burns. How far yeah, along are you Alex guys? Alex Burns and I. We've done a lot of reporting, and um, it's not it's not uh, completely cooked yet. But obviously, mm-hmm. uh, it's an account of 2020 and 2021. So mm-hmm. obviously, we're now in October of 21. So we have a lot uh, of, of of stuff that we've picked up. Um, but obviously it's still ongoing and, you know, we're the kind of reporters where we're going to be uh, finding details and sort of adding them in there up until the thing literally goes to the publisher. So of course. Uh, if folks are listening to this and you have ideas, insights, scoop, uh, nuggets, what have you, please, please reach out Jonathan.martin at nytimes.com. Um, I'm here for you. I'll make, I'll make sure that I put that in the, all the promo for the podcast <laughs> too, Jonathan. <laughs> Promise to put that in the description of the podcast too, because I know that that's, that's a real value to you. Um, tell me a little bit about how it was. So you were off all summer. Did you travel? Were you out uh, getting, you know, sort of visiting with folks out in the States? How is that? Your book is obviously going to be one of a few autopsies of sort of what's gone on. How is your book going to differentiate from some of the other things we've seen? Um, it covers Trump, but it's mm-hmm. not explicitly a Trump book. Ah. It's a more comprehensive account of this period in American political history. Interesting. Uh, that includes sort of you know a number of different vantage points, mm-hmm. um, both White Houses, Congress, uh, a range of uh, officials. Um, so I think, you know, uh, there's new information about President Trump, but it's not just about that. Interesting. Uh, it's our view that um, there's a lot more to get into beyond beyond President Trump and his his various um, uh, actions. Yeah. So set all of that aside, put that up on a shelf. And now we're looking into the Congress today, sort of where we are, this right. this and back and forth. I, mean, I think our view, Lisa, is that like January 6th and the aftermath are extraordinarily consequential mm-hmm. uh, in American politics. And we really want to capture not just the 6th, but the full aftermath of the 6th in both parties. Mm-hmm. And that's unfolding before our eyes today. I mean, as it we're is. sort of watching yeah, what's no, going exactly. on. I mean, we're, you know, the Capitol is a much tenser uh, place uh, between the two parties now uh, in the aftermath of the six. Mm-hmm. No question about it. Um, but also the on the House floor, mm-hmm. there's real distrust, especially in the House. Yeah. Between the two parties, comedy's you know, sort of broken down. But also, even when you look at the Senate, it's not even in some places, it's not even on party lines as much as it's sort of um, lots of little factions and, and little um, pockets of, of power right. that are really sort of right. unfolding in exchange. Yeah, it's um, it's not what it was 10 years ago and 20 years ago may as well be ancient history. Um, right. Trump, I think, accelerated. I don't think Trump's the only reason, but Trump's definitely the accelerant of Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of polarization, you know, this hit me just a couple of days ago, Lisa, and that is, you know, there's no mask mandate in the Senate like there is in the House. And what effectively you have now in the Senate is masking by party. I mean, almost mm-hmm. to the person, 
in the Senate, the people who wear masks are Democrats and those who don't are Republicans. And, you know, um, it's a pandemic, but you wouldn't know it because it's 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 apparently now split by by party in terms of the masking. And, um, you know, what better example to capture the sort of polarization in the, in the country over this this virus than uh, who chooses to wear a mask now and who doesn't in the U.S. Senate? Um, you know, when even the pandemic is is um, is, is a partisan thing, uh, you know what we've gotten as a country, right? Mm-hmm. You know what, too, that has also dawned on me and has uh, unfolded in some of the other conversations I've had lately is that, um, you know, for years, Jonathan, we, you having worked in politics and then having covered politics, a big priority for political operatives like myself, having come up through that system as well is we wanted to get more people out to vote, right? We wanted to get more people engaged in the process. We wanted right. to get more people to to really, to, you know, to be part of the system and be have a voice. And now it makes me wonder, um, what were we wishing for? Because really now we've sort of, what we've, what we've arrived at is a much more partisan and, and definitively split country uh, because people yeah, definitely have and, hardened. You know, it, it used to be that, Democrat or Republican was more a matter of preference. And, you know, some people were more liberal, others were more conservative. But that was just, you know, that was who who you preferred. It wasn't a matter of your identity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now it's like sort of more rival tribes than, uh, you know, chocolate or vanilla ice cream. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, And you see that in polling. So there's that question of would you be upset if your if your child married somebody of another race that used to be really sort of uh, revealing uh, 50 years ago, people were against that, obviously, and thankfully that's changed. But you see that question now about your child marrying somebody of the opposite party. And, you know, there's some real unease about that, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just a preference now. It's a matter of personal identity and values. Um, And you see that manifested in so many ways. Uh, Politics is now infiltrated uh, American culture in a way like it really hasn't since the 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no question about it. And I'm glad you brought up polling because I asked this question of Amy Walter when we spoke a couple months back about because so much of what you're reporting on is sort of um, not just what's happening on the in the Capitol or in the campaign, but how it sort of adds to the broader narrative, how it contributes to the broader issues at hand. Polling itself has has become maybe less of a tool that you can use because it is so um, it's hard to to nail people down and get a sense of sort of where the where the sentiment is. Are you getting that sense in your reporting? Is that you have to get out more to visit with people to get their their feelings about the issues, or is polling going to yeah, have a resurgence? It's a, great mm-hmm. it's a great question. I mean, I think you have got a mix polling with uh, on the ground reporting now mm-hmm. because you've got some folks who just aren't honest in polls or won't even take polls. Yeah. And so it's hard to rely on that as a measure of public opinion mm-hmm. um, when it's missing large chunks of the population. That makes this job a lot tougher. If you yeah. don't have a better sense for public sentiment um, you know, uh, via polling, it's, it's harder to pick up on the ground, but yeah, you're right. It does create more of an impetus on the reporter or a burden, I should say, on the reporter to sort of get on the ground and talk to people and sort of use that in conjunction with survey, survey polling. Jonathan, what, um, what states are you watching most closely? What, what intrigues you as someone who's a consumer of political activity? Like 
where are, where should we be paying attention? What kinds of are there battlegrounds? Are there places that are unfolding as as interesting to you going forward into the next cycle? Um, it's a great question. Um, look, I think Georgia and Arizona are super fascinating uh, states that are obviously moving now um, from red to sort of clearly purple, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's significant. Um, uh, just the sort of nature of those states and how the big metros, Phoenix and, and Atlanta, and both of those states are are driving statewide politics is, is fascinating, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, I think because of what's happened in Atlanta and Phoenix, Georgia and Arizona have made for very interesting states. And it captures, like I said, the sort of bigger change in American politics, which is, you know, cities and suburbs, um, which in the past sometimes were very, a very different political leanings are now sort of more in conjunction. Uh, and it's, you know, the exurbs and the rural areas uh, that are, that are markedly different. Um, you know, you just, if it wasn't for Atlanta and Phoenix, those states would still be red. For but sure. Those two metros have gotten so big and so Democrat dominated mm-hmm. uh, because of their diversity and their education levels that, um, they've created competitive states. And I think the flip side of that, by the way, is states that historically were more Democratic-leaning, you know, like the Great Lakes states, mm-hmm. that now have gotten harder for Democrats to win because you just don't have the kind of large, diverse, college-educated metropolitan areas mm-hmm. uh, you know, in some of those states that can offset the broader sort of rural and exurban vote. Right. Um, so I think those those are sort of big demographics to me are fascinating. Um, I think just in terms of, you know, races, oh, my gosh, you know, Liz Cheney's primary in Wyoming is going to be fascinating because the implications for the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lisa Murkowski in Alaska, her Senate primary for the same reasons, um, going to be fascinating. Um, look, I think um, the sort of battleground Senate races, New Hampshire, Nevada, North Carolina, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just so many. I, I know. I know. Well, I, I'm always curious. I always do that because I always want to know sort of how are people, um, what are people like you watching? Because that makes it sort of a shorter list for me on election night. Like, what is Jonathan caring about? And then I want to take a quick look at it and, and follow up, um, which is so great. So uh, tell me a little bit, Jonathan. I know we've we've got short time because I know that the Senate and the House are agitating like crazy up there on the Hill, and I'm so grateful for your time on this super busy day. Uh, tell me when you are not writing a book and when you are not uh, covering the Congress, what kinds of things during this unusual time are keeping you busy, like on the weekends? What kinds of hobbies are keeping you ha- keeping you happy? Uh, it's mostly this book. Yeah. Um, that's my life. But, you know, Betsy and I, my wife and I um, love sports and try to get to football games when we can and, you know, concerts when we can. Yeah. Um, we spend a lot of time in New Orleans, which is her hometown, which mm-hmm. is our, um, our um, uh, hopefully someday full time home. Um, <laughs> so that's so no, a great part a of the world. Year. It's been a busy year yeah. coming to this book and um, and sort of uh, do the, the day job at the same time, but my gosh, so consequential. Uh, you just know that we're living through historic times. And so it's fun to, to capture it. And I'm, I'm staring at the Capitol right now. And, um, you know, you just think about everything that's happened in there this year. Um, 
you know, being able to sort of capture that from history has been really neat. So. Well, I'm glad you're there and I'm glad you're doing what you're doing because it really is very, very important and very relevant and, and just valuable to me and, and to folks like myself who do what I do. Uh, Jonathan, before I let you go back into yeah. that crazy house that, that it is, yes. uh, tell me, uh, if you will, are there are, is there a reporter or a journalist that you might yes. recommend for a future Maggie episode? Haberman. Oh, Maggie. awesome. My colleague at Politico and now at the Times, Maggie's a force of nature. Um, she is uh, a superb reporter, excellent person, and just great fun, too. Um, she, as your listeners know, covered the Trump administration, but has covered politics uh, long before that. And mm-hmm. um, uh, maybe will reveal some of uh, her, her trade secrets. I don't know. Give it a shot. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much. And thank Thanks, you, Jonathan. Lisa. Great to talk to you. Yeah, enjoyed it. And there you have it. Another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. I'm so glad you joined me. And I'm so glad you're looking forward to the November 17th conference with PR Daily. Because I'll be there and a moderator for one of their great panels. Discover what's on the horizon at the Future of Communications virtual conference on November 17th. Learn the strategies, tactics, tools, and technology you'll need to position yourself well just in time for your 2022 communications planning. And don't forget, Friday Reporter is the code to use to get $100 off of your registration. We'll see you next week. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.